Okay, gang, take your Bible and find Jonah. Jonah. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little extra time. Uh, we won't get there for a little while, but if you can go to your Old Testament, it's part of the group of minor prophets. Uh, find books like Amos and Obadiah. Then comes Jonah. There's Micah, Nahum. Jonah chapter 3. We'll get there in just a minute. Uh, if you will give me about an extra three or four minutes, I promise that I might dismiss you a little bit later than normal. Um, but I'm going to get through something that's super meaningful here, if you'll just give me a second. Um, in a world of seven plus billion people, it's very easy to feel insignificant. Uh, I remember feeling like a big fish in a small pond when I was a high school athlete. I went away to college at a pretty good-sized university, and I was on a baseball team, and I was a very small fish in a very large pond. I remember taking batting practice for the first time. We played in a, a big stadium. It was a, the Chattanooga Lookout Stadium in downtown Chattanooga, and I took batting practice, and I tied into one and put it deep into left center, and I just kind of stood back and admired it, thinking, look at me, look at me, and the ball fell like 70 feet short of the wall. And I realized I wasn't nearly the stud I thought I was. Um, There are lots of college students and high school students have recently graduated and they're going to find their way throughout their life. They're going to find their path. Uh, Many of them are going to go the the way of their parents into business maybe. Others are going to go in the way of technology, maybe healthcare. Some are going to pursue athletic careers. It's been an age-old question for many, many years. Is it better to be a nerd or a jock when it comes to how your life turns out? How much money you're going to make. You know, LeBron James is playing tonight, and he is the highest paid basketball player I think there is. He's going to be the first basketball billionaire since Michael Jordan, if you can believe that, uh, playing basketball. He was a first-round draft pick. He's been with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's been with the Miami Heat. Now he's back with Cleveland. He took him to a, a national championship last year, and he's trying to do the same thing this year. Uh, he has not retired yet, so we can't do the calculations like we can with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan re- retired for the second and final time in 2003 from the NBA. At that time, he uh, signed... Uh, over $40 million in endorsement contracts that would on, that would keep going even after he stopped playing. That was in addition to everything else he owned as far as real estate. He owned several restaurants. He owned sports teams. Michael Jordan is worth well over a billion dollars today. Now, again, the question, is it better to be Michael Jordan or a nerd like, say, Bill Gates? Uh, here are the calculations. Michael Jordan goes to sleep tonight, and by the time he wakes up in the morning, he's made $52,000 in interest. If he goes to a movie theater, it costs him $10 to get in, watch a two-hour movie. But while he's there, he's going to make $18,550 watching that movie. Must be nice, eh? When he gets up in the morning, cooks himself a five-minute egg. During the cook time, he'll make 620 bucks. He makes $7,415 more an hour than minimum wage. That's pretty impressive. When he goes and plays golf, it probably costs him about $200 because he plays these high-class courses. But while he's out there playing golf, he'll make $33,400 while he's on the golf course. Now, with all that in mind, if Michael Jordan saved everything, From the moment he retired, for the next 450 years, he'd still have less than Bill Gates has today. Bill Gates is worth tens of billions of dollars. When I hear numbers like that, I feel pretty insignificant, don't you? When I think about big people, famous people, 
people of fortune, people of power and influence. I feel very, very insignificant. And yet the Bible tells me the exact opposite. The scripture tells me that I am significant. The scripture tells me I am unique. The scripture even goes as far as to say that God, the creator of the universe, has a plan for my life. That there is something God wants me to do. And the something God wants me to do is significant. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. The Bible says, I am a chosen person. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness. So I may be only one, and I may feel or seem insignificant when compared to a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan or the President of the United States or someone like Bill Gates, but the Scripture says otherwise. Edward Everett Hale has written, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but I can still do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. There's where my title came from today. What is the something you can do? And why don't we do it? If I am correct, and the scripture really does say that God knows you intimately, he has a detailed plan for your life, he has something that only you can accomplish for his kingdom, if I am correct, then why don't we do it? Why don't we do the something that we can do? I think it's because of this. I think we're overscheduled and undercommitted. This is a term that we coined as a staff about five years ago when we started analyzing our church population. Yes, we study you people and talk about you behind your back. We study our community, the Statesboro Meadow area, all the surrounding communities. We study American culture. We talk about it, we read about it, we research it. Americans, Statesboroans, Metarites, Grace Community Church attenders are overscheduled and we're undercommitted. We say yes to everything. We say yes to everything our children can be involved in, I guess because we fear they might lose some of their popularity. We say yes that everything that the boss or the job asks of us, I guess because we fear losing some of our prosperity. What's remarkable to me, when we say yes to everything, you realize what happens as a byproduct, that means nothing is important. When I say yes to everything, by default, without realizing it, that means nothing is important. That's why you live with such stress. That's why there's never enough time. That's why your life, like your bedroom closet, is cluttered and overflowing. You know, it's one thing to have a garage or an attic or a shed outside that's overflowing. It's another thing to have a life that's overflowing. We're overscheduled and we're undercommitted. We say yes to everything. Think about it for a minute. Ball practice, summer camp, student ministry, dance class, making money, success, Church attendance, a weekend getaway, time with the grandparents, time with the children, a small group. When I say yes to all of that, it means that nothing is important. This past week, we took about 26 kids, I think, 4th, 5th, and 6th graders up to Look Up Lodge. There were six adults, in, uh, in addition to my wife, seven total, six adult volunteers 
who gave up precious vacation days to spend time with your children. They said yes to something that was important, which meant they had to say no to something that, while important, was not as important, and I thank them for it. I can remember something about summer camp. I can remember at summer camp, I first put the pieces together and realized that Jesus died for my sin, and I came to faith in Jesus Christ at summer camp. I played all-star baseball. I played all the sports you could name. In high school, I was an all-conference quarterback. I played basketball. I was an all-conference catcher. I even played soccer. I was heavily involved in extracurriculars, but they didn't teach me what summer camp taught me. I found Jesus Christ at summer camp. I committed to purity at summer camp. I can vividly remember as a, as a, a, a junior, about to be a senior, I promised God at summer camp that when I got married, I'd be a virgin. And I was. Let me tell you the value that has, has helped me over the past 25 years in marriage. I promised at summer camp that I would never do drugs or alcohol. I would never get involved in that. And I haven't. At summer camp. I didn't make those promises at all-star practice. I didn't make those promises at dance class. I didn't make those promises at a cheerleading event or a gymnastics meet. I made those promises at summer camp because thank God, and I thank them all the time, my parents knew what was important and what was not. My parents wanted me to know that God had a plan for my life and that there was something I could do for him. Yesterday, there were five volunteers, five parents, excuse me, five adults who had worked Thursday, Friday, and Saturday deep into the wee hours of the morning decorating for your kid's summer camp, and only one of those five actually have a child that's going to participate in summer camp. A church the size of this, when we shoot out a text, or I stand up here on Sunday, and I said, we need some help. We need some help in decorations. We ought to have 50 people volunteering because it's important, gang. It's important. I'm shooting out texts, man. Can you come help us decorate? These people are working like crazy around here. Well, Johnny's got a birthday party. We plan to go to Splash in the Borough. Oh, now I'm stepping on toes on it. It's the shirt. It's Darth Vader. He's coming out in me. Gang, listen, we've lost sight of what's important. And when we say yes to everything, then nothing is important. The story of Jonah is a story of values and priorities. Everybody knows about Jonah and the whale, but I don't want to focus on that part of the story. I want to focus on the end of the story, chapters 3 and 4, Jonah's big missed opportunity. You see, the Bible contains both stories of people whose lives and hearts were committed to God, and he blessed them for it. Like 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. But it also contains the stories of men and women like Jonah, whose lives weren't. One of my favorite verses, it's actually framed in my office. It says, it's Ezekiel 22 verse 30. God said, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall, who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. 
And that is just as true of the United States of America today as it ever was 2,600 years ago in Israel. Jonah is identified as a failing prophet. God gave him one task. Jonah was no Moses, so God didn't ask him to lead people from their bondage. Jonah was no Joshua, so God didn't ask him to go conquer the promised land. Jonah was no Joseph, so God didn't put him in charge, second in charge of all of Egypt. Jonah was Jonah, just like Mike is Mike and you are you. But God nonetheless had something he wanted Jonah to do. And Jonah wouldn't do it. The question I want us to consider today is why? The city of Nineveh was huge. Nineveh dates back to uh, the days of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. This is an ancient city and it was enormous. Back in those days, if you had a city of over 100,000 people, it was gigantic. At Nineveh's height, she had almost 600,000 in population, which probably made Nineveh the largest city in the world at that time. And God chose Jonah to take a message to him. Now, unlike all the other prophets, you see... All the other prophets in the Bible were told by God to pronounce judgments on other lands, enemies of Israel, but they pronounced those judgments to Israel. Jonah's the only one that God said, I'm not only going to want you to go to Nineveh, I want you to go to our enemy and I want you to pronounce my coming judgment. And so Jonah says, absolutely not, I'm not doing it. So what God have to do? He swallowed him up in a big fish three days and nights. He's in the belly of this fish. He's belched out onto the beach. Finally, he changes his tune. I want you to read with me in verse 3, verse 3 of chapter 3. The Bible says, Jonah finally obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to walk through it. Verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a pretty straightforward, simple, and harsh message. Look how they responded. Verse 5, well, the Ninevites believe God. Overnight, man, I wish I could preach a sermon like that. Ten words and the whole city turns around. From the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. That was a symbol of their mourning and their repentance before God. Uh, the king even got involved in the following verses, and he issued a decree. He said, look, gang, we're going to pray to Jonah's God. We're going to turn from our wickedness because we want God to save us. Look down to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. He did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So we ought to be throwing a party, right? Jonah is going to go down in history as one of the most effective Old Testament prophets. But that's not how the story ends. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Now, I thought about this for a second. I tried to put myself in Jonah's shoes. You realize it's probably his patriotism that made him hate the Ninevites. Old Testament prophecies like Amos, uh, Hosea, they all said that that Nineveh, the Assyrians, were going to dominate Israel. So Jonah and all his cohorts, they hated the Ninevites because they were the enemy. What if God spoke as clearly to me as he did to Jonah, and he said, Mike, I want you to go to northwestern Iraq, ISIS territory, and I want you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those Muslim fundamental terrorists and I'm going to change their ways. Now, that'd be a hard ask, first of all. But let's say I did it. And let's say I went over there. And I kept from getting my head chopped off. And I 
kept from being, being killed. And I preached the love and grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And all the ISIS fighters in the area bowed down before Lord God, the one true God, and they changed their ways. Let me tell you something. I wouldn't be angry. I'd be, I may be getting out of town, you know, just in case. But I wouldn't be angry. Jonah is actually angry here. Verse 2. He prays to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, just take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Jonah, is it really right for you to be angry? The story ends very abruptly. Jonah has gone outside the city. He's ignored the complete turnaround. He's oblivious to the revival because he doesn't care. And he finds shelter. He finds shade under this vine that's grown up. And he sits down in the dirt and pouts. But the vine begins to wither. And it bothers Jonah more that the vine is dying than that the people of Nineveh Nineveh didn't have to. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. The Lord says to Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Jonah's failure to do the something, the one thing that he could do is the tragedy of the story. Jonah was a preacher. He had a staggering opportunity. You see, once these people turned, they were going to need a leader. They were going to need a teacher. They were going to need somebody to help them build a temple. They were going to have to learn how to worship. Jonah said, no, thank you. My question to you is why? Jonah said no for the same two reasons we say no. Number one, Jonah had a people problem. Jonah had a people problem. Why do I want to help my enemy? You know, Jesus said, love your enemy. And that all sounds good when you're reading those red letters in your New Testament. But when it comes to dealing with difficult people in the workplace, it flies right out the window, doesn't it? See? You see, people problems are more than just racism. Racism may or may not be a problem in certain communities in the United States of America. Maybe the media makes it out to be much bigger than it is. I frankly don't know and don't care at this point. But I will tell you this. Along with racism, the hatred of someone else simply because of their heritage or the color of their skin, there are a lot of other people problems to go along with it. There are poor people who resent rich people. And politicians, man, they whip this up. They play this up. See, if I make more than you, that's unfair. And the only fair thing is to take what I've got and give it to you. Poor people resent rich people. Employees resent employers. Again, the politicians really dig their heels in on this one. If you are a worker in a company, you might not have gotten the education. You might not have fronted all the cash. You might not have dealt with the startup costs. You might not bear all the risk and and responsibility. But you still think you're the hero. Come on. Come on. People who are single sometimes resent people who are married. People who are unhappily married resent people who are single. See? We've all got people problems. Fast drivers, aggressive drivers resent slow drivers. See? Jonah had a people problem. Here's the reality check. Do I have one? 
Do I have a people problem? Do I resent someone simply because of the color of their skin and the stereotype by which I've stamped them? You might not even know them. You might not know who they're li- what they're like or who they are. You've got to understand, you'll never make a difference in the something God has asked you to do if you think God spent less grace to save you than he did to save somebody else. Or you think Jesus spilled less blood to forgive your sins than he did someone else. Handling people problems, very quickly. If you want to handle your people problems, I've got three suggestions. First of all, remember, God commands us to love others, not like them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that I've got to see things your way, we've got to get along, there's got to be chemistry between us, I've got to like you, we've got to be buddies. No. There are legitimate conflicts in personality that may never be resolved, but I'm commanded to love you. Number two, pray for that person. That's my advice to more people than you realize. So many people sit in my office and they pour it out. And my first impulse is to say, we've got to pray for that person. Because let me tell you what happens when you pray for someone. God does more to transform the prayer than he ever does the prayee. The prayee might not change one iota, but I have experienced this. I do. You will. And here's number three. Don't spiritualize their differences. If there's someone you like... Don't think somehow they're spiritual just because they're like you or you guys hit it off or you gel. I see people do this all the time. You know, that soft-spoken, kind-hearted, considerate person, man, they're like Jesus. But the guy that's a little more forceful, the guy that's a little more type A, oh man, he's the devil, right? We spiritualize those personality quirks and differences. Don't do it. All right, that's number one. This is what I really wanted to get to and I've got five minutes to do it. You want to know the other reason? Jonah lost his opportunity to make a difference. He not only had a people problem, he had a priority problem. I think priorities are dying symbols, dying breeds in our culture today because we're overscheduled and therefore undercommitted. Imagine the self-centeredness of this prophet who is more concerned with his own comfort underneath the shade of this vine while he sulks than he is an entire nation that's turned to God. John Maxwell is one of my favorite authors. He's a leadership guru in our nation. Uh, he's written several books on the subject. And in one of those books, he makes the statement, prioritize or agonize. He said, the reason we agonize, the reason we live with such tension, the reason we handle such stress, the reason we have no margin in our lives, no breathing room in our lives. The reason financially it's always tight and time is always tight is because we don't prioritize. We agonize. He says, number one, practical people know how to get what they want. You know what I admire? I admire some of these high school students that stood up here a couple of weeks ago when Tyler interviewed them. What are you going to be when you grow up? Bam, here it is. I'm going to do this. I'm going in law enforcement. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going into business. I'm furthering my education this way, doing that. I am thankful that at 18 years of age, I knew what God wanted me to be and I knew where I was going. Practical people know how to get what they want. A lot of those people who stood up on this stage, a lot of people you know and I know, will be millionaires by the time they're 50 because even at the tender age of 18, they know exactly where they're going and they know exactly what they want. But that's not it. We applaud that in America, but there's more to it than that. Philosophers, number two, they know what they ought to want. See? Deep down, those deep thinkers, they know what they ought to want. Now, blend those two together. Number three, people who make a difference know how to get what they ought to want. 
Let that sink in for a minute. Moms, dads, what ought you want for your children? Think about that. Moms, dads, what ought you want for your family? What ought you want? Now, we'll talk about how to get it in a minute. But first of all, let's remove all the clutter and let's examine what we ought to want in the first place. And then once you know, then you figure out how to get it. Jonah, like many of us, he failed to make the difference because he became too wrapped up in his own schedule. He became too wrapped up in his own personal problems to recognize that he had a priority problem. Jonah didn't know what he ought to have wanted. And that's why he failed. Consequently, his success, his failure, represented in the well-being of that silly little vine and his momentary happiness. Again, I think one of the reasons we say yes to so many things is because of fear. We don't want our kid to feel left out. We don't want our kid to miss an opportunity. We don't want our child to lose any popularity. We as a family don't want to lose prosperity. We as a family don't want to lose this, that, or the other. Let me remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. And verses 25 to 33, Jesus said, why do you worry so much? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat and where you're going to eat it? Why do you worry about what you're wearing and whether or not you fit in? Why do you worry about where you're going to live and how big and square footage, how much square footage your house can? Why do you care about all these things? Why do you worry so much? Don't you know your heavenly father knows you need them? And then he says this, seek first. Because it's important. Seek first. Because camp made the difference in my life. Not all stars. Seek first. Because a relationship with Jesus Christ guides my life. Not my athletic prowess as a 20 year old. Seek first. His kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things that you worry about. That we given to you as well. Now. You willing to take him at his word? I was 20 years ago. And I'm very content with my life. How about you? I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, willing to take him at his word. And there's margin in my life. Margin in my checkbook. Margin with my time. Margin with my recreation. How about you? Take a quick story about a young girl named Stephanie. Stephanie was one of these 18-year-old girls on a fast track to nowhere. She uh, started dabbling with drugs and alcohol at the tender age of 14 or 15 By the time she finished her sophomore year of high school, she dropped out of school. She was hanging with that, you know, have fun now kind of crowd, running away from home. Late one night, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, she found herself standing outside a convenience store. Her friends were inside. It was going to be an awesome weekend, epic. One of her friends had scored a mountain cabin for three days. They had enough drugs and alcohol to keep them wasted for a week. Man got out of his car and walked into that convenience store and he paused for a moment. He looked at her because he thought he recognized her. Kind of shook it off. He went on in, got his eggs and his milk and his bread and his ice cream. He came back out. He realized, I do know you. He said, you're Stephanie. Are you all right? She kind of nodded, wondering, how does this guy know me? He said, I recognize you from the picture on your father's desk. See, every day your father and I, when we have lunch, there's your picture. Now, what he didn't tell her was that every day for the past year or more, They sat together, had lunch, Jack and her father, and prayed for lost Stephanie. And now here he was. He said, can I take you home? She said, no. He said, think about it. Your parents would love to see you. Can I take you home? Finally, for whatever reason, she agreed. Got in his car. He drove several miles down the road and dropped her off to her relieved parents. 
Fast forward six years. Reading from her blog, Stephanie writes, I was heading for who knows what and I didn't care. Jack got involved and that made all the difference between life and death for a tired 17-year-old girl. She goes on to talk about how that one night when one man did the something he could do changed her life. Jonah had that same opportunity. You and I, we have that same opportunity. You don't have to wear a microphone and stand on this stage to do the something God is asking you to do. But it's out there. And if you can get past the people problems and you can overcome the priority problems, you can take advantage of the opportunities that God is laying in your path. And I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, we have an opportunity this week to watch you touch little lives. And just like last week in the mountains and just like next month in the mountains and just like the mission trips and the high school trips and the student ministry overall, Father, we are simply privileged to participate in your overall plan. I I just pray, God, that we don't live such cluttered lives that we can't find time to do what really matters most. Father, forgive us for saying yes to everything and failing to realize that that means nothing then is important. And help us overcome our people problems, overcome our priority issues, that we might take advantage of those opportunities you present us. I pray this because of my faith in you, obviously with respect to your son. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you. Make it a great Sunday. I'll see you next time.